A message from our sponsor, Infinity Satellite and Software Solutions, LLC. Barge tracking is becoming more and more important to companies, especially in low river stages and bad weather. Track and manage all of your valuable assets in one source with our comprehensive and easy-to-use web-based mapping and management application. We offer a complete end-to-end -end solution of products, software, services, and support. We offer solar GPS trackers that are intrinsically safe with Class 1, Div 1, and Zone 0 certifications. Our portfolio of GPS satellite products are designed to fit your every need. For vessels, we can automate their ICWW fuel waterways tax by state. The system automatically calculates the taxable river miles traveled, and with just a click of a button, a customer can run an accurate report and pay their taxes by state. Please check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, or at our website, www.infinityssss.com. Again, you've seen how these shows begin, so there's a few talking points we just uh, mentioned, but tell me, uh, where were you born? Uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, at, woman, at the old woman's hospital. And what was life growing up? Was was your dad already on the river? Yes, my dad was already on the river well, whenever I was younger. Uh, uh, for the first, like, five, six years of my life, my dad and my mom were together. My dad worked on the river. If he wasn't on the river, then he was fishing or golfing back then. And my mom, at that point, was a... Uh, she did a little bit of work she cut hair and then she was also stayed at home with us mostly because he was working in the fleet back then where he was doing shift work where he'd do days nights and off so it was it was fleet work just like seven uh 14 and seven rather yes sir okay and even even whenever he made it he made the move to go over to live on or to to trip work for the longest time, it was still the same schedule because they used to chase the boats back then. My dad didn't live on a boat until I was into my mid-teens. Well, what can you tell me about his career? Uh, he, I believe he started out at Weber uh, or somewhere in that that realm of the world, Weber, Burnside. With, and uh, he... Worked there for a while, then he moved over to uh, Plimsoll. He was at Plimsoll for a lot of my childhood until pilot's degree happened. He, uh, him and uh, Chad Leeper, his dad, Jerry Leeper, they used to work on the uh, run where they would split. They would they would uh, take a 30 barge tow out of Darrow. They would split them, and they, one would take 15, the other would take 15. And this was back in the days I'm taking 15 loads down to Myrtle Grove uh, on a 1200. And that was when he chased the boat. He didn't live on the boat. They would just drive each other's vehicles. He would call. He'd wake up at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, call and see where they were at, and then drive to wherever they were, get on the boat. The other person would get in whoever's vehicle they were in at the time, get, get in the vehicle, drive at home, and they'd come out the next day and just keep swapping off back and forth like that. And uh, he worked He worked at Plimsoll up until pilot's degree happened, which was a strike in the 90s for uh, wages and stuff. What year would that have been that uh, that your dad was uh, chasing boats like that? Uh, it was probably, uh, that was all the way from probably 95 up to 99. 
and I think he continued. I think he continued chasing the boat whenever he went over to McKinney. So it was well into the early two thousands, I believe. Um, whenever he was working at McKinney on uh, AA McKinney, um, doing the same job, doing the the redelivery type trade where you're doing the shuttle trade, you know, going all the elevators and everything. Pretty sure he chased that boat as well. I don't remember him living on a boat until I was, like I said, almost a teenager. You know, I was born in 87. He was he was always home, even though he was when he was home, he was asleep a lot of the time. He would always come home every day for the most part. Gotcha. What can you tell me about pilots agree? I just I know that it was back then they were making less than what deckhands make now. Well, less than what deckhands are making now. Um, and I know that they were, I, I don't know all the details of it, but I just know they were trying to get up to a more livable wage because the people and people above them were, they were making, they were making a good living. The people that were in the, in the office or the people that were owners of these companies, they were, they weren't having any problems like make, keeping the lights on. And, you know, he, we had, at that point we had. It was five of us. It was me. Or is it five? Me, my older brother, uh, my little sister. I had a, a half brother who has passed away, and then a uh, two step siblings. But at one point in my childhood, everyone lived in the same house. So we had all the kids, and then two grandkids living in the same house because my stepbrother worked with my dad on the boats for a while as a deckhand. And it just, you know, it was, it, it was a lot. I could, I can, I don't know. I don't know all the, the, um, sorry. I don't know all the hardships he went through, you know, what he dealt with, but I know it had to be a lot because that was a lot of mouths to feed. I know he didn't take a lot of days off. Um, he probably worked almost straight time. He, he, you know, still to this day, he has a heart. He doesn't really say no to overtime very often. They ask him to work. He usually goes to work, but they, they went, they did the, there was picket lines. They uh, went to the people would like donated food and stuff. We were, we had, we had a lot of food from food banks and stuff when that was going on. But whenever that happened, he, wasn't it wasn't allowed to go back because he walked off the boat uh the boat he was working on he was one of the ones that walked off and a lot of people said they were going to and not everybody did you know and because he did what he said he was going to do he got you know blackballed for it i'm sorry my, my computer screens are going haywire because i got you on uh on my phone <clears throat> but i'm sitting in the computer room i got you that's no problem well, what can you tell me about your stepbrother? Uh, he was working on the, the river with my dad. And actually, he is the reason that my dad and my stepmom met. Because when my dad went through, when he went through the divorce with my mom, he needed someone to watch the kids. And that's how they came to be. She was the stay-at-home nanny. And then they became, you know, romantically involved. And they've been together for since I was like six years old, I'm 36 now. So they've been together for 30 years going on 30 plus years. Now they've, they've done pretty well. They've been through a lot together for sure. 
Well, let's get back to you. All right. So you're born in 87. Tell me about your childhood. Uh, I was, it was pretty good. I, I was a wide open kid. I was very, uh, energetic. Um, but also I, I loved music. I loved reading. I loved all, I loved, I really liked school. I liked, uh, history and uh science were like my two favorite things until i got to high school and i discovered that music was a thing in school and then i really uh i pursued a lot of, of uh choir and like then using the music i learned from being in uh vocal singing applying it to instruments which was i thought that i was gonna i thought that i was going to go to school for performance music when I was younger, that's what I thought that, I, that that was gonna be my thing, and then I just realized that that's a dream. That's not a uh, that's not really a a lucrative uh, way to make a living, as much as it is a good hobby. I started my college career in music and didn't last two years. Got out of that and went to business. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So when I was a kid, when I was a kid growing up, uh, we we lived in Baton Rouge at first, but not long after my parents split up. Uh, we moved out to Prairieville, Galvez area, um, which is in between Baton Rouge and Gonzales. And then my mom stayed in Baton Rouge. So I would bounce from Baton Rouge to Gonzales to the, you know, to back then it was the country. Uh, it's not quite that way anymore. It's, it's a lot bigger, but back then it was way more rural than it is today. And, uh, I would go from my dad's house where I went to school. I went to school out here, and then on the weekends, or every other weekend, I go to my mom's house. And that was back whenever you could still hop on your bike and disappear for ten hours out of the day, as long as you were home. And no one thought anything of it. Just be home when the streetlights came on, be home for dinner. But even at my dad's house, it once it was day daylight, you. You went outside. You didn't come inside until it was time for dinner. During the day, you stayed outside. And it's crazy to me that kids don't understand what that is. You try to get, get my, my kids to do that nowadays, and they're, it's hot. Like, well, what did y'all do when it was hot outside? Well, we drank out of the water hose. You know, we, we stayed out there until we were allowed to come in. We weren't allowed to just stay inside the house all day, every day, playing video games. Yeah, we survived it. Oh, we did. It was, and it was great. I, I loved it. I, I skateboarded, I rode bikes. I, you know, got into trouble, it, but that was all part of growing up. There was, there was, I wasn't a perfect kid by any means, but it was a different time. It was a way less dangerous time than it is nowadays. And it was, it was at the end of that era, you know, it was starting to slip into what it is now to where it was kind of questionable once I got to be in my teens of whether you could really just be out and about without supervision. Cause it was just getting more and more wild in Baton Rouge and the surrounding areas, especially after Katrina and every, and then the influx of uh, people from New Orleans came to Baton Rouge and it just seemed like a lot of people stayed. And then the, it's, it seems like crime rates have just skyrocketed since then. And it's been just going up and up and up. That's what. That's why it got to be more dangerous for me. It just it seemed like the violence picked up and everything just got for went to a place for the worse. From like the age of sixteen, seventeen on, 
Like, I would never imagine letting my kids just go hang out in Baton Rouge or ride their bikes. Because I used to ride my bikes to downtown Baton Rouge from uh, Terra. I don't know if you're familiar with Baton Rouge at all, but from where the town center is on Jefferson and Blue, uh, Jefferson Highway and um, by Old Hammond, that's kind of close to where my mom lived. We used to ride our bikes from there all the way down to the river center. Down, downtown Baton Rouge and go ride bikes and skateboard down there during the day and then ride our bikes home before it got dark. That's a serious ride too. Yeah, it was quite, it was quite long. It was probably, it would probably take us about 20 minutes of riding our bikes from uh, there to where we were going. But we knew, but growing up down there, you knew all the, all the roads, you knew how to get there, get from point A to point B pretty quickly. It, I mean, it wasn't terrible. I grew up in church too, though. A lot from the age of like six, six or seven years old on. The, uh, that was back in the days of where they would ride around in the vans, like the church vans. Would, they would show up at your house, knock on the door, and invite you to church. And your parents would be like, "I don't go to church, but we'll take your kids." And they would just let you get in the church van and go to church on Sunday with a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> that won't work anymore either <laughs> but yeah that was my introduction to church was uh, you know people would come up we'll take your kids to church you know y'all don't have to come if you don't want and they would well they would want you to come but they would pick us up in the morning on Sundays and we'd be gone until like two o'clock in the afternoon I got ran over by the church van one time what denomination was this it was Calvary Heights Baptist Church it was a Baptist church yeah and they they uh they they would come around knocking on doors and they would invite you. And then when we moved out to to uh Prairieville or out to Galvez, same thing happened. A Baptist church out here called Broussard Grove came and knocked at the door. And it was our neighbors across the street. They came over. They invited us, and we went. And then my dad started going then though. But before, my dad didn't go to church at all. I think he was raised in church as a kid, but he just didn't go. Are you a church girl today? Like I should, not like I should go. I And I've been telling myself that I'm going to get back to going like I used to, but I just, it, everything's always so busy and I haven't made, I haven't forced myself to make the time. I feel like I should go to church because I, I did my whole life. I mean, and I feel like my son should be raised in it some you know, but I also don't, I don't believe in forcing, um, forcing your thoughts, especially when they're young down their throats, well, political or religious, you know, what originally brought you to music? I just, my mom, my mom loved music. Uh, she always, she would always be playing like Jimi Hendrix and Metallica and all these different, really awesome bands, like growing up at the doors, uh, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, like, this is the stuff that I would listen to when I was with her and I just loved it. And what was funny to me was I always thought when I was younger that I was drawn to the guitar because that's what I thought I wanted to play. And then when I started playing music, I picked up a guitar and I was like, I don't like this at all. And I realized that the sound that I was hearing that I liked so much was the bass guitar. It was never the guitar at all. And uh, yeah, just, and then I, I, progressed i played music in church a lot uh growing up too like that was something that i continued to learn 
music through church because I would play music in church. But yeah, my mom loved all music. And there's a lot of bands that I was introduced to by her. And then as I got older, there's a lot of bands that I introduced her to, you know, that because we both loved rock music for like always. Do you have a favorite Pink Floyd song? Wish You Were Here, without a doubt. It's probably one of my favorite songs of all time. What about Hendrix? Hendrix, oh, that's a tough one. Jimi Hendrix, which the, um, I've got uh, purple. I got lyrics of purple from Purple Haze on my back for my mom because that was her favorite. But I think that my favorite would probably have to be. Uh, it's terrible. I can't think of the uh, the name of the song right now. What is it? Bold as love. Bold as love is my favorite Jimi Hendrix song. I was trying to think of it because it's it's not from. It's uh from when it was Jimi Hendrix and the Band of Gypsies. Yeah, I don't really know. No, I don't know too much about him. But uh, jumping ahead, when did you did you go straight into the industry after high school? No, no, I didn't. I uh, I I was told not to by my dad. He told me to go do something different. And I out of high school, I was I was cooking at restaurants and then working construction. And uh, then I got a job doing, uh, which I really, really loved. I was doing uh, staging work through a company called Rhino uh, Staging, where I would do like basically like roadie work where you'd go, you'd set up and tear down concerts. You would, I learned, you got to learn a lot of cool stuff, got to see a lot of cool stuff doing it. But then I eventually, after being there for about a year or so, they got me. They, they needed somebody to do what was called high rigging, which is where you go up into the ceiling and you pull up all the, uh, you set up all the points for the speakers and the lights and all the truss that holds everything up for the concert. And I started doing that, which I thought I was, you know, doing really, really well for myself when I started doing that because that was probably in 2007. 2006 2007 something like that and i was uh making 25 dollars an hour doing that so I, and it was really it was wild because it was one of those things where if you worked over a certain amount of hours in a day then you got paid overtime but i got to see some i got to see almost all my concerts just from working that job because they would get you to do show calls where you would stay and you'd work during the concert, so you'd be backstage. I was, I was backstage for uh for Tool. I did sh show con show calls for Tool. I got to be backstage for Rush. I got to see um, Boston and uh, the Sticks. There's a lot of really cool shows that I got to see just because of that job. But it was seasonal, and it was um there was no real schedule to it. They would you get called out so you'd get a call like on a monday hey can you work these days or when they have events coming up hey can you work these dates in this month but if they didn't have those anything to do then there was no type of retain you weren't getting like a set amount of hours to where you could stay working like that and that's generally that's eventually what led me to move past that and go do something different and where'd your career take you next uh, I was, I think I was, I was still, I went back to working in restaurants just because it's what I knew at the time. 
restaurants and paint and houses for one of my dad's friends. And then my friend's little brother joined the army and he um, was on that train of trying to recruit people. Cause at the time they were doing, if you, if you uh, got somebody to sign, to go and sign on or sign enlist or whatever, they were doing something called GRAP where they, they would pay you $2,000. You would get a, a bonus for getting someone to sign up in the con sign up in the military. And he was trying to get as much money as he could. And he was sitting there talking it up and he made it sound good to me. And I, you know, I went and talked to him and I, I enlisted in 2009, 2008. Yeah. I left in 2009. But you did end up in the, in the national guard, correct? That is where I ended up. I, uh, I did a few years active. And then I did a couple of deployments and then I did a bunch of training deployments afterwards, but I finished up with, uh, what is it? 13 years overall. And, uh, I got out of the national guard. I think it was two years ago. And I was, my last place was, um, alpha company in Brobridge, Louisiana, uh, second to the one five, six. And it was, it was definitely, you know, I really enjoyed my time in the military, uh, and it made me, it was a big part of what made me into the person that I am today. Just, it wasn't working out with, uh, the National Guard was not working out with my civilian career. It just, once I became, when I was a deckhand, it wasn't a big deal. But once I became a wheelman, it was just so difficult for them, for any company really, to try to work a schedule and keep a boat running around the fact that I was going to be, gone for weeks at a time in the summer i could get called up to go deployed anytime they can change my like the way that the national guard did your training schedule they would just change it up at a moment's notice and you were expected to be there by law so i'd have to go to the, these training days if they wouldn't let me out of it and it would make them to where they like i remember acl was having to shut boat shut my boat down because they didn't have anybody to fill my spot so that, that whole boat for that 12 hours was not making any money, but they were still having to pay for the crew on the boat, but it wasn't producing anything. So I get it. I understand how, how much, how difficult that has to, has to have made it for companies to try to meet the bottom line. Cause at the end of the day, you still just, you have to make it lucrative. If you can't make it make money, then you can't keep doing it. So at what point in the reserves did you go into the maritime industry? Oh, about, I came back from one of my, my uh, from Iraq in 2000 and what was it? 2010. And I was, uh, I was looking for a job and I had started school. Couldn't find a job that would work with me around school. And I started working for the Louisiana State Military Department. At the youth challenge program, I was a cadre. I was a, a basically they called it the cadre, but it was basically just a drill instructor for at-risk youth. You know, trying to it's like sixteen, it's like fifteen or sixteen up to eighteen-year-old boys and girls that are not doing well in life, and they have decided that they want to go and get a GED. They might have trouble with the law. They might have anything going on to where they're just trying to get some type of structure 
make a life change for the better. And I did that. But whenever I, when I found that job, I was, uh, had just recently was in the process of getting married and I couldn't, I was having to you know, make the decision that like, I want to support my family or the family that I'm about to start. And I had to choose work or school and I chose work. And then even in doing so, even though I was working a full-time job, like or over a full-time job hours, I was having to work two jobs. Um, and I was work waiting tables during the day and I worked straight nights at uh, this at the youth challenge program. So I would work, I would go wait tables during the day. I would uh, like lunchtime and I would go home in the morning, take a nap, go wait tables. And then once I was done waiting tables, I would uh, run, go to work, work all night and then hope that I would uh, be able to get some rest to go do it all again the next day. And my dad's like, son, why don't you just come out here? You know, AEP is a great company to work for. You know, you should, you should apply. They're hiring for, for fleets. It's like they're hiring in the fleet and convent. It's not far. He's like, it's, it's good money. You, you, you'll, he's like, you're a hard worker. You'll do well. So then I, I went and applied and the rest is history. I applied. It started in uh, May of 2012 is when I started at AEP River Operations. Tell me about the uh, training and onboarding process at that point. It was, um, it was, it was actually, you remember, do you remember Brian Glover? Yes. He, uh, Jeff Walker, who was usually the trainer, uh, he was injured. That was when his shoulder was injured. And, uh, Brian Glover and Kenneth Prosser are the two people that did my deckhand training whenever I came on at AEP. And it was six or seven of us, I think, that came on and, I do believe that one of them is still at ACL to this day. The rest of us have moved on to other things or up in the wheelhouse or, or somewhere else, you know, but one of them uh, is still there at ACL to this day, still working in the convent area, but it was, we, we came on, it was a lot of PowerPoint. Keith Bell was still there. Holly Hydell, uh, Kiana Jackson, they were all there. We did a lot of the, the death by PowerPoint. And then we went out on the training pad and sat there and, and learned how to lay wires. And everybody swore to, got swore up and down that I had worked somewhere else before, that I'd been on the river before. But it, I just always took a real common sense approach to it. It just laying wires didn't seem didn't seem very difficult to me. You, you, you once you understood the what you were trying to do, the the effect you were trying to, what you were trying to make happen. And you knew that you had these options, you could do whatever you needed to do. Just, you needed to know what the function of it was. Then you could go about laying it better. If once you understood what you were trying to accomplish, but yeah, they all, they still, there's a lot of them still to this day think that I had worked somewhere else before I came to AEP. But my first experience on the river was at an AEP river operation. Well, tell me about your first time stepping on a boat. First boat I stepped on at AEP was the safety guide down at Belmont. We got on the safety guide as, as in the training class. We went down there, and uh, the captain on watch, his name was Randall Poole. And uh, we're up there talking to him. He's up there telling us what's going on. 
and he broke a headline almost immediately. And I remember asking, is that, was that supposed to happen? He goes, nope. And just went on about the day. Um, but it was, it was an experience. We got to, we got to go. And that was a great thing about the way AEP did their training is you didn't just do it all on a fake concrete pad. You didn't do it all in a classroom. We did five days of going on boats. You would do like three, you would do three days during the day of going on boats and working in the fleet and being with people on the boats and getting to actually put what they're trying to teach you to use and see how it works. And then they would make you go work two nights on the wash dock where you go and you'd go pretty much, you would get on the boats. They didn't want you getting on and off the boat at night because you weren't very aware of your surroundings and didn't have a good idea of what was going on uh, yet. But you would go and stand on the wash dock, wait for them to bring barges in, and then you go out there and wire them, wire them into the wash dock and then go and wait on the water, and then go just wait again for them to bring more barges. But I feel like they, that's something that a lot of companies could, especially in the day and age of, the lack of experience that we have right now, a lot of the new people trying to bring on new guys and understand what's why they don't stay. I feel like a lot of them don't still don't know what they're getting into, you know, that we, we fully understood what was going to be expected when we stepped foot on the boats after we were done with training, you know, it was a very, it was a very effective training model that they had. And everybody was, and as you know, too, at AEP, everybody was so, willing to train everybody wanted to make everyone else better there wasn't a lot of um a lot of backbiting or anybody trying to hold their somebody back it was just everybody was trying to lift each other up and that was a real pleasure uh, that made that made it such a pleasurable place to work tell me about your journey from deck to wheelhouse and how many companies you worked for and maybe jumped around <laughs> i uh i started at aep and i uh I did my, my required time to get my license. And then once I, well, I, my first year of being on the boats, I didn't go in the wheelhouse at all. And people kept asking me when I was going to come up there because it was ex almost expected of me just because of who my dad is that they thought that I'd be chomping at the bit on the boat. But I, I'm a firm believer of, you know, of paying your dues and learning there's no reason to try to, to, you know, jump up to the wheelhouse if I don't even know what I'm doing in my basic job I'm supposed to be doing right now. But once I started, once I went up there and ran the boat, the first person I ever ran the boat with was Jay Kishinik. Do you remember, you remember Jay? I do. I think I actually saw him at Costco and I did not stop and say hello. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, he was the first person that, because he told me to come up there and I was, because I was his lead man. When I got my first lead man spot, he told me to come upstairs and he asked me, he's like, why aren't you running the boat? Because I don't feel, I feel like there's other people that are ahead of me that should be running the boat. He goes, well, are they up here running the boat? And I said, no, he said, well, then you need to start doing it. And I came up there and he, and I ran the boat every, from that point on every day, I would run up and down the stairs. If I, when I got on the boat, I would, wouldn't let it hinder my ability to do my normal job, but I would run out there, cut the barge loose, run back, move the barge, get to where, or, when I got to that point, at first, Jay makes makes you just learn how to run the boat light boat. So I would light, light everywhere we went light boat, I would run the boat light boat. If we weren't doing anything, if we were at a slow day, I would be running the boat around in the fleet, 
getting light boat boat handling skills down. And then from that point on, it was always the same thing. Even whenever Jay left and went back to the convent and Bongo came down there, it was the same thing. I'd, I'd come back to the boat, move the barges, go back out, time off, go and just a constant thing. But I feel like that served me well because I didn't wait for someone to tell me that I could steer. If someone was willing to train me or give me the opportunity to, to continue to get better at my job or to learn more, then I was I was going to take that opportunity. And I remember they wouldn't pay you to steer on your time off, but they would let you come steer if you were willing to do it for free. And I think that my, that year that I got my apprentice license, I think it worked about 340 days of that year because I was working at least three or four days of every time off coming in to steer uh, for free if they would let me. So I, I, I did the best I could. So I, I did all that. I got, I got all my licenses, everything signed off, got all that done through AEP. I was supposed to be we went through the steersman elections, everything. I was supposed to become a steersman at AEP, and then we got sold. Um, I stood my first watch as a trip pilot at Cooper Consolidated. Um, one, of, one of my really good friends, I grew up with his mom, is one of their dispatchers, and she called me. She needed somebody. I had a master's license. And... She said, are you, are you ready? I said, yes, ma'am. And I went to work for them. And I still, I still do trip work for them to this day because they, they, uh, they gave me my shot. That's who I, my, very, my first time running a boat on my own was through them. And they've always been good to me. They just never had a full-time position whenever I was in the, in the market of looking for one, you know. Uh, so, Before we get too far past that, tell me about working for Bongo. I know you said Jay was a pretty good influence. Uh, have you heard about working for Bongo before? Is that why we're getting in that? Bongo trained me and taught me a lot of what I know today. Um, in working for him, a lot of the time wasn't bad. But then th there'd be times where we would butt heads and it was, it was hard not to quit. Uh, but I can never take away from the fact that, that he taught me so much of what I know today. He is the reason that, that I, he, he's a big part of the reason that I am where I am. He signed off on like 80% of my toe on. Um, and we had our moments, but everybody, but uh, he, he was hard to work for at times. And uh, it was, it was, it was, you know, it was an experience. But when it came down to him teaching me, he was a very good teacher. He taught me a lot. He signed off on a lot, and he um he had a short memory when it came to your to your little your little spats that you'd have because no matter who you work with, you're not going to get along with them all the time. You know what I mean? Like you're especially when you got all you've seen the kind of personalities of the people that work out on this water so you you sit there 
you, you get it, you have, you have yourselves a little moment or you get into an argument, but the next day there would, there would be no grudge, you know? And that was one of the good things about work. And you didn't have to worry about just because UNAM got into it a couple of days before that, they could, that there was going to be some type of uh, vendetta or anything held over you from that. And he, uh, like I said, he taught me a, a lot. I, I, I owe him a great debt when it comes to the knowledge that he passed on to me. And he passed, he, he trained a lot of people because he, I think he enjoyed, I think he enjoyed teaching. He, he helped make a lot of good pilots for sure. Well, you mentioned learning with Jay and, uh, and steering, I think with Bongo, right? Yes. Yes. I decked and steered for Bongo. You had some other mentors along the way to the wheelhouse. Yeah. After Bongo, uh, Bongo left and Chad Leeper came in, came in after him and Chad's big claim to fame was he told me, I see you can run a boat. Now I'm going to teach you how to work. So Chad came in and fine tuned a lot of stuff and showed me some tricks of the trade that I hadn't, you know, seen before, but also may, focused on trying to make sure that you understand that, you know, your, your name and the job that you do is what you, is what you have. Is what you have to show for, you know, your career out here and that being productive and putting forth your like a hundred percent effort whenever at all times is, is a big deal. So he made sure that I, you know, that I was better after he left me because he was with me for about a year and a half, two years. Then after Chad left, Scott Logsdon came in his place. And uh, Scott Logsdon was, he came down from up north. He was a line boat captain and he came to the fleets and he showed me a lot about moving a lot of barges. Like, because, you know, working in Belmont and convent in that area, you would shift, you would shift like entire toes from convent to Belmont and from Belmont up around to, up to convent a lot, like 20, 16 to 20 barges at a time. Sometimes you would take an entire tow from across the river and go put it in the fleet at one time. And he showed me, you know, how to handle that much tonnage with a 1550. And he, he was very good at his job. Um, I worked with him. That was the last person I steered with, was with, with, with Scott before I became an official steersman. But intermixed between all these people, 90% of my career was on elite boats, either in convent or Belmont. So I never got to go on trips on my normal time. So like when I was talking to you about earlier about how AEP offered you the ability to steer on your days off, but for free, I would go, uh, a man, a guy named Neil Buris used to work on the safety team and he would almost take, he would take almost all the trips. So I would work on my days off and I would come in, go with him. Cause I knew that if I got on the boat with him, I was going to get the opportunity to go out of the fleet and deliver barges somewhere and see more than just convent or Belmont. Cause I didn't want to be limited to only knowing how to work the fleet. Cause a lot of guys, when they got broke out as fleet pilots, you know, that back in the day, we, you had to deliver barges to Zeno. You had to go to Darrow. You'd have to go down to reserve, sometimes even Laplace, wherever they needed barges delivered. If it was on your watch, you'd have to go do it. And if you would never done it before, there's, pretty intimidating if all you'd ever seen was between college point and oak alley or 
between college point and brilliant point, you've never seen anything other than that. And then it gets a little bit precarious, you know, but I, I had the opportunity to learn from all those guys and they all, they took, they all took pride in, in, you know, passing on their craft. Me and Chad are still very close to this day. Me and Neil are still close to this day. I don't speak to Bongo as much anymore, but it's just because he's retired and we don't really live close by with one another. But um, I actually, the job I'm on now was because Chad left to move on to, to, you know, bigger and better things when he left turn to go to Ingram. And uh, I, I went on his old boat, you know, and which was kind of cool for me because he was a big part of who trained me coming up. I'm still trying to line him up for the show. He'll eventually come on over here, man, especially if, if his name keeps popping up on here. People are going to be curious about who Chad Leaper is, and so he's going to have to come and let everybody know. And your next stop, was that Cooper? Oh, no. Cooper was just – I've only ever tripped with them. I was still working – whenever I was tripping as a, as a captain for Cooper, I was still decking for AEP. I would just do it on my days off. So I would – I would deck in my normal my normal hitch of work in AC an ACL, but I'd work my normal hitch of work as a deckhand or a mate or whatever you want to call it. And then if they called me on my time off and had something for me to do, I'd go run a boat because I was fully licensed. I could I could. I just they didn't have anything. No one had anything for me full time. And uh, whenever the the buyout took place, a lot it put the breaks on a lot of us being able to move up. It wasn't just me that was affected by that, but me among other people were put on the back burner for a long time before we got a chance to even become steersmen. And then I went through the whole program at ACL as a steersman and then was under the impression that I was close to being cut loose. And I got a phone call being, being told that I was going back to the deck because they were doing away with the, steersman program and i decked for acl for another year after that and then they they eventually cut me loose uh on the safety priority working at belmont and then they transferred me up to convent not long after that but yeah cooper was always in a trip pilot uh, uh role i was never a, i've never been a full-time employee or worked an actual schedule for them, it was always just if they needed someone to fill in or somebody got sick or they had something that was going on, they needed some help. I would go help them out. And was Convent your last stop with ACBL? Convent was my last stop with ACBL. I think that we separated at, in uh, December of 2018. Where'd you end up from there? I worked a month and a half straight at uh for, for Bill Strait at Western Rivers. That's who my little brother was working for at the time, or that's who he had worked for. He had, he had passed away not long before that, but that was who he had worked for, and he uh, needed somebody to fill in on a boat called the Miss Courtney at Zeno. And uh, I, I worked that entire time that he needed the, the spot filled in because I didn't know, you know when I was going to be able to get a full-time job. So. I did that, and I had reached out to uh, Sean Dozat and Denny Palmer at Turn, and they were wanting me to come in and interview to come to Turn, but 
uh, I would already had already uh, told Bill that I would work those days and I wasn't going to go back on the fact that I could that I could work these days for you because I was on a dedicated schedule. I was going from days to nights and uh, and off, you know, or whatever, however many days off you'd give me. But I was working like a, a set schedule to where I was in a spot where if I were to back out on him, then he would have to find somebody else. And uh, I did I did that until from the middle of December up until late January. And then I think I started for turn. Uh, I was supposed to go, I was supposed to go to Burnside fleet to Impala whenever I started for turn, but they had somebody else hired on. And that in the meantime, while I was working those days for bill and then I, they told me, Hey man, I know that we were talking to you about, Burnside, but that spot's been filled. And I sat there and I kind of shook my head like, but hey, would you be willing to work live on? I said, I'm willing to work whatever. I just want a full-time job. And that's when I got on the Blackbeard return and I ran the Blackbeard for about a year and a half, doing the same thing I was doing before, just not getting off the boat. I was working in Convent, Belmont, and Armont and doing all the little short runs from Darrow down to Laplace. Yeah, how was that experience? Any different from... AEP, ACPL? Uh, it was much different than ACPL. Turn has been very good to me. Um, they they treat you like a, they treat you like a person. It's more of the feel like AEP, how it's a small. So that was, that was the weirdest thing to me about AEP, how AEP felt like you were working at a small company because the people treated you like you, you weren't a number. You were not just a, a person that worked for them. The office personnel came down frequently. You had a face-to-face -face interaction with people often. Uh, that all kind of fell by the wayside once we got bought out. But the uh, the the way that they do business, man, the, I can call. I can I can hang up with you and call the vice president of operations right now, and he'd answer my phone call. You know what I mean? It's it's a really pleasurable place to work, and they've taken care of me. I've uh. I've really furthered my career a lot uh, working over there. I've done done everything. You know, I went from working on the smaller boats, doing the short runs, and I went back to the fleet, continued working the fleet. I've worked, I've worked in every fleet that they've got, except for Harvest State or CHS. So I've gotten to see every like i've seen a lot of places that i would never would have seen otherwise i've gotten to do all different aspects of this job and then now i'm on the pharaoh pushing 20 from baton rouge down to myrtle grove which is you know just it's been it's been i've gotten the opportunity to do things here that i wouldn't have gotten to do if i would have stayed at acl what's the the best place you've seen between Baton Rouge and uh and Myrtle Grove on the water <laughs> uh oh man it's it's all it's all just water it's not it's not like with everybody else where you get to go up on the Tennessee and you get to see all these pretty places I guess I think what I think is really cool is when you're going up uh uh around Plaquemine and in between like uh Point Claire and Plaquemine whenever you got the islands and stuff that you run around that was cool to me, but they have that all over whenever you get up above Baton Rouge. But for us, 
us, you know, people that are from down here and haven't seen above Thomas Point, then, it, you know, that, that was interesting to me, like running back behind those islands and stuff. Like right now with the river like it is, you can run behind the islands northbound. You run the chutes, and that that's cool to me. Um, I think my fa favorite bridge is probably – the either the Huey P or the GNO, just the way the, the way it looks, the, the way they look, especially at night, those areas don't make for fun traffic uh, arrangements usually. So I can't really say it's my favorite place on the river. Yeah, I've been through both bridges on on a boat a few times, and I know, I know what you're saying. The, the rest of them are kind of kind of boring. But are, are any of them especially difficult to navigate? Everyone says that the Upper Baton Rouge Bridge is uh is is uh, supposed to be so bad and from my run I'd, I'd make it all the time and it is it's you know it can it can be precarious but the the one the one I hate making and it's not because it's hard to make in any means is Gramercy Bridge at night I can't I the all the the dock lights and everything behind it it's so hard to see the uh the lights on the bridge to see where you where you want to go you know but i'm sure that probably out of all the one all the bridges i make the most difficult bridge to make is the upper baton rouge bridge because if you're steering it you got to drop down and steer through the baton rouge side and if you're flanking it you got to come around there and make that uh, port allen span so it's just there's not a lot of room for error on either one of those and that run you're on now is roughly mile 55 to 237 yeah it's yeah 237 down to 55 yes sir do you have aspirations to go further north or maybe up to tennessee you know i'm not gonna say that i would never go up there but i have no i've got no aspirations to leave uh, the people i work for you know so not the only way i'm gonna leave is if they tell me that i that you know you know for some reason that my position goes away I'm not trying to go anywhere. I, I, I really enjoy working for them. But to say that I don't ever want to see those other bodies of water, would, I would probably be a lie. I would eventually want to be posted on all of it. If I'm going to do it, you might as well do it all the way, not just limit yourself, which I've that's what I've tried to do th so far is not limit myself. You know, anytime that they've I've been offered a spot to to, you know, become better, I've tried to take it and I've tried to make the best of it. Is your dad posted everywhere? I think so. I think everywhere other than like the, I don't know if he's posted on the upper. I know he's posted in a lot of places and he's gotten, he's gotten to see a lot of stuff that he hadn't seen in a long time. Now that he's at Southern, he's running up there, running North quite a bit and he loves it. He says it's really nice. How many years has he been out here? He was out here when my brother was born and my brother was born in 81 and he was already running boats then. So I'd say over 45 years, probably close to 50 years now. Well, I hope we can line him up on the show here. I'll try to bend his arm for you, man. I'll try to get him to come over here. I'm sure it won't be too hard. He's got to, the thing is for him is if you want him to be able to actually talk to you like this, you're gonna have to get him when he's at work, probably. Because where he lives in Arkansas, they don't have, very good internet or cell service so he's not going to be able to do a whole lot of this video calling or anything like that and you got to be prepared for him to be 
all the way in the camera because this is the only way he knows how to talk on the phone. Um, <laughs> I just I just lost my question. Oh, where does he uh, where does he run when he's working? Uh, he runs the run that he's on right now is he runs from uh down in Gosmer up to I think it's Cincinnati, and he goes back and forth. But I could be wrong. I know it changes a lot. But he runs. He has three chemical barges, and he goes up and down with them. I guess we'll just we'll figure out the best cell phone area. We'll work it out. Well, what do you think about my little program here? I like it, man. I uh, I listen to it mostly when I'm actually at work running up and down the river. It's easy to listen to. Uh, I've gotten to hear stories that I've never, you know, and learned about people that I didn't know those things about him like i i liked Denny's um interview i really enjoyed tim callahan's uh when they're in seeing people like brian girk and tim and people that you haven't i haven't seen or heard from in years and getting to hear their stories has been really cool for me and then all the other people that have come across there that i, I didn't even know existed you know but then hearing things they have to say about the industry and it's just been it's been very educational and it's like I said, it's easy to listen to. And it's given and you're learning about something that once you once you do this job and you start doing this job, you know in the first year whether you are you whether you've gotten bit by the bug or you're gonna go and do something else. You know, you and it's once it's in you, it's in you. You can't do anything to get away from it. Like I, I love I love what I do. I get fussed at all the time because I talk about work for no reason when I'm not at work. It's just you know, it's a part, it's a part of who I am. I really, I appreciate what you're doing, man. It's been really, really cool to uh, get to hear all these people's stories. And then I've, I'm definitely, I feel, feel felt like I had a story to tell because I don't think I've been out here long enough to really offer much to, uh, to the program as it, as it is, but um, I'm going to what I can for sure. Well, look, man, I appreciate your time. I know you had some things to do this evening, so I thank you for joining me here and uh, we'll keep in touch. Hey dude, it's not a problem. Maybe one day we can actually get some lunch since we don't live very far from each other.